What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The views given on the following program are not necessarily the views of the station management or staff. Since individual situations can and will be different, please remember this when exercising any options presented by our guests. Success is equated with excess. The ambition for excess wrecks us. As the top of the mind becomes a this is Care for My Wealth with Chris Klein of Capstone Wealth Management, your fee-only investment firm. Now, here's your Care for My Wealth guy, Chris Klein. This is Care for My Wealth right here on Fox Sports 1070 to the game. Joined this Saturday morning by Chris Klein. Of course, Chris comes to us from Capstone Wealth Management. You can learn more about Chris and everyone at Capstone Wealth Management on the website careformywealth.com. That's careformywealth.com. Learn more about their go anywhere strategy as well. As you listen to the program this week, maybe you're thinking, you know what? I would like to talk to Chris. Well, Chris would love to talk with you as well. It's as easy as picking up the phone and giving him a call. 866 866- 596-9886. That number, 866-596-9886. You can also email info at careformywealth.com. That's I-N-F-O at careformywealth.com. As mentioned, Chris Klein is with us this morning. Chris, how are you doing this week? Good. Man, another week's gone by already. How about that? It's it's. <laughs> I was reading somewhere, and I don't know where it was or, or even what the full context about it, but they talked about how the kind of the illusion of time as you age and how literally as you get older, as far as how your brain processes time, time does go faster as you get older. And I feel it's, indeed it does. It is. It is great to be able to chat with you again this morning, though. And we've got a, a lot of really interesting things going on. And um, you were t- you and I obviously before the show, we uh, chat for a bit and you're telling me it's it's both a difficult and a dangerous part of the cycle right now, isn't it? Uh, it is actually. Um, so we're into earnings season. Uh, and so now what you have in the context of the current market cycle, of course, are what we would refer to as catalysts. And catalysts can go both ways. Of course, you can have a catalyst of a, a good earnings report that can be met by the market with excitement and, of course, bid the stock price up. And then you can have a negative catalyst where uh, no matter what happens in the earnings report, the market just punishes whatever that company was. And we've seen both this week, right? Uh, and and so one of the interesting things I think with respect to markets in general, of course, is just the concentration that uh, continues to exist in, in the biggest of the big names. And, and you saw a little bit of that start to play out uh, this week with both Netflix and Tesla coming out with their earnings reports. And I got to tell you, the reports weren't bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the grand scope of things, um, Tesla appeared to have a year-over-year acceleration. Uh, you know, there's some crazy things going on in the conference call and you know the details and the data and whatnot. But what matters is how the market responded. Sure. And you know, the market responded just just in a very negative way. <clears throat> so on on, uh, gosh, what was it? Thursday night. Um, Time goes by too fast. I does. You know that? <laughs> yes. 
So on Thursday, uh, Wednesday night, they reported Thursday, of course, the stock got the opportunity to trade on it. And, you know, it was down almost 10% on the day. Um, and what's interesting about Tesla, of course, is that it's uh, it's widely viewed as the poster child for the future of the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, at the same time, you've got some of the biggest fan boys and girls uh, that manage the ARK investments uh, out there having sold Tesla or a lot of it, I should say, over the past roughly year. Hmm. And, you know, so you sit back and say, okay, well, if they're selling it, uh, what does that say? I'm not really sure, but it's still a widely owned uh, equity. And and if you look in the top 20 holdings of most large cap mutual funds, you, you're likely to find it there. And so you kind of saw the same thing out of Netflix too. Netflix on, on Thursday was down about eight and a half percent. Yesterday, down again. Um, you know, and so what does that do? Well, in the context of where we are in this cycle, this is very similar to what we saw in 20, uh, 2001. And in 2001, one of the things that I think was interesting was the market topped in 2000 had a really hard blow off. And, and, you know, you, you probably remember, I'm guessing some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you and I were laughing a little bit that not as many people as you think were alive and managing money through the past now three cycles of, <laughs> of major, major drawdown type cycles. <clears throat> and, uh, and so it gives you an opportunity to contrast and compare historical standards, historical metrics, the technicals, the math of it all, and come to some conclusions of, um, you know, what does this really look like? Is, is this something that is, uh, you know, super serious and is going to get you know, potentially worse, or or is this something that is going to be uh, dealt with, perhaps similarly to what we saw in two thousand one? And so, you know, let me give you a quick history perspective. The reason why I say that there's so many similarities to that cycle to this cycle, um, it, more so this cycle, I think, than that one. But this one very much tied to a consumer slowdown. And both in 2000 and 2008, it was very much of a Wall Street slowdown. In other words, things just got so speculative and so ahead of themselves. And we saw some of that in 2021 with people buying all the meme stocks, you know, the, the everybody going crazy over things like GameStop and 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 whatnot. And uh, and you're seeing some of that again now as the bubble tries to reinflate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that I think people either don't remember or haven't taken time to look at is that from September 2001 to January in 2002, the NASDAQ experienced a 49% rally. Now, people look at that and say, holy smokes, that's incredible. That's crazy. Well, yeah, it, it is. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it's not unprecedented to see or experience that kind of a movement. And you know, if we take a look at the October lows of last year, you know, the NASDAQ is now in that same kind of territory, right? Mm-hmm. What people think or what people tend to forget, and I do remember that 2001 cycle very, very well. <laughs> it was, uh, it, it's indelibly marked into, uh, into your brain when you, when you see and experience something like that. Again, in the midst of a trending bear market. And, and that's the context that we always have to keep this stuff in, in mind is the lens through which the grander trend is actually happening. And what's interesting about then, like now, is that everybody was shouting from the rooftops about the new bull market and how excited they were that the terrible bear market of 2000 was finally over. And 
all the dip buying that had gone on and failed up to this point are now starting to be rewarded. And people were starting to cheer about getting back to even, right? And, uh, and that's very similar to today. You know, people can see within a stone's throw the, uh, the, the, the recent peaks that took place in both 2021 and then for the S&P 500, January 2022. And so the whole mantra of, hey, it's a new bull market, now's the time, we're missing out, all that kind of vernacular then, very similar to exactly what's happening on happening today. And then, like today as well, there was just a ton of data that that slowed you know, and, and all the correlations correlated. In other words, everything started to trade like one another. Uh, and when you get all asset classes trending towards the same correlation, that's not a good thing. You know, people can think that it's a good thing that all these asset classes might be going up at the same time and woohoo, it's, it's super bullish. It's not. Correlations that, that start to correlate <laughs> and even out one another uh, tend to end up with some serious corrections. And so the history lesson, of course, is that people need to to remember that from January 2002 to the market bottom of October 2002, the NASDAQ fell another 47%. And that made that, that particular bear market, that made that bear market a 78% start to finish drop, March 2000 to October 2002. And people just even today don't think that that can happen again. And I'm telling you, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying that the possibility is there. And the reason the possibility is there is that when you take a look at the economic underpinnings of both of those particular cycles and both of those particular markets, there's way more bubbliness that exists in today's market comparative to then. There's way more debt in the system than compared to then. And I think an interesting, you know, anecdote or whatever you want to pin to it is that you start to look at and and review some of the surveys from various loan officers, or even if you have the opportunity to have a conversation with some of them. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're finding that 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 they're saying is that lots and lots of homeowners, new buyers, <clears throat> are uh, are of course getting mortgages now in the seven plus percent range because that's you know where the thirty year fixed rate mortgage is is kind of trading out in at this time that they're coming into $7,000 plus mortgage payments and saying it'll be okay because we'll just refinance when the Fed oh. cuts rates because, oh, they always do. Well, okay, uh, I get it, but this is a different cycle. Uh, and the differences, of course, are the extent to which the debt load exists today compared to then. And and when I say the debt load, it's not just residential. It's It's commercial, it's everywhere, and it's not just domestic, it's global. Governments, as you know, have been deficit spending for years and years and years on end. Hmm. And the estimate right now is somewhere to the tune of two trillion for twenty three and twenty four is about the deficit spend that the u s. government's going to run into. Hmm. Most of us hear trillion. I don't know about you. We hear trillion and go, yeah, trillion, billion, tomato, tomato. What's the difference? Sure. Right? yeah <laughs> It's a huge difference. I mean, the the a trillion is just an enormous amount of money. And uh, and so you've got that going on. And then the other side of it is how the Fed is likely to react to that. Now, it's our expectation, and this may or may not hold out to be true, and this is why we take everything literally one day at a time, one week at a time, 
look at the data, ask ourselves if it's accelerating or decelerating, just let the math tell us what's happening. But one of the things that could play out is that the U.S. government decides, which is what they most likely have always done, <laughs> that uh, that they, they're going to just finance all of the debt at the short end of the yield curve. In other words, they're going to deficit spend $2 trillion between 23 and 24. Ooh. Well, to do that, they're going to need some help. <laughs> and the help is going to have to come from the Federal Reserve. So what does the Federal Reserve do? Well, the Federal Reserve ends up generating a, a distributive or stealth QE by allowing for much of that financing to take place, one, on the short end of the yield curve, and two, through reverse repo agreements. Now, I'm not going to spend this show telling you and talking to you about what re reverse repos are. You can look that up. It's, it's probably beyond the scope of what we want to do today, just in terms of helping you understand the current landscape. Just know that if the government, in fact, does that, it would act as a bit of a stealth quantitative easing. Now, if they're stealthily handling or handing the markets some quantitative easing, how in the world does that help our inflation picture? Mm. Doesn't. No. Uh, yeah, right. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. And you're starting to see that, you know, and, and, and you're starting to see that if you just look at commodity space, you know, and we talked a little bit about this last week where we've seen so many commodities move up just since the end of May. And, and it's not isolated to the ag uh, type data. It's, it's not isolated to just oil. And oh, by the way, those are pretty, some pretty big numbers, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, oil prices going up cause, of course, gas prices to go up, which, of course, comes out of the average American's pocket, which, of course, when you think of inflation as a whole, it's hurting people's spending abilities. Mm. And, uh, and, and you, you just you keep that happening. And it starts to impact buying. And I give you an, I give you a quick example. So just yesterday, one of the, the data pieces that came out was that for the first time in history, this year, the rejection rate of auto loans exceeded the application rate. Hmm. Now, I want that to sink in for just a minute because it dovetails into all of the data that we've been talking about now for about a month. And that is that lending is tightening. And as lending tightens, it restricts economic growth. Why? Because people can't buy some things without credit. Lots of people have to take out a car loan to get a car. Not a lot of people walk in, stroke a check for a $50,000 automobile and say, thanks, have a nice day, mm -hmm. right? Are there some who can? Yep, absolutely they are. <clears throat> but vast majority of middle America earning the average uh American income, which is, you know, right around the median, I think is like $70,000 a year. They're taking out an auto loan to be able to get that new vehicle. And so to see that happen just confirms for us the extent to which lending is getting restricted. Another example of that is the earnings that came out and were announced by uh, Discover Financial on um, Wednesday night, I believe. And then of course their stock got the opportunity to uh, respond or react to that uh, detail and data on, uh, on on Thursday. And it wasn't pretty. I mean, the stock was down 19% in a straight line. And Now, this is Discover. <laughs> Last time I checked, Discover is a pretty big company. Uh, they, uh, they, they tend to have some pretty strong financials yeah. when, uh, you know, in, in the hole. But you go through their, their earnings report and you listen to the earnings call and, and essentially – 
one of the things that they said was that we're we're just we're we're halting stock buybacks and and we're essentially stopping lending. Okay, um, that restricts economic growth, right? Yeah. Now, are those two isolated incidences? Maybe you can take away from it whatever you want. What I take away from it is the beginning process of stage three of the bear market starting to work itself into the system. The other thing that we've seen this week, which has been, I think, very interesting, and uh, it also dovetails into things that we've talked about, is mm -hmm. that when recessionary action and recessionary activity starts to percolate underneath the surface, Wall Street tends to respond. And they tend to respond in, in equity space by buying those things that tend to do well in the midst of a recessionary cycle. And so those would be the consumer staples, the healthcare utilities, stuff of that, that nature, things that people need, whether there's a recession or not, right? And what did we see this week? That's exactly what we saw. We, we've seen things like uh, consumer staples this past week go up like two and a quarter percent. Healthcare was incredibly strong this week. I mean, healthcare was up like 4% on the week. And ordinarily, that sort of stuff just kind of meanders around and goes kind of slow. Uh, utilities, <laughs> utilities were up like five and a half percent on the week. These are some pretty big moves. What does that tell me? That tells me that Wall Street's probably rotating into these defensive, more recessionary type uh, uh, secure names. Hmm. And, uh, and, and if that continues, of course, which I tend to think that it will, yeah. As long as volatility stays fairly muted, then that rotation that maybe we're starting to see is uh, is giving us the opportunity to build that recessionary portfolio out and just work on making sure that you're being protected in an environment that I just don't think is done with, with the cycle. And, and again, that cycle, like what we saw in 2001, was one that everybody thought was complete in September of, of 2001. And it wasn't even close to being done. It was another year before it was over. I have no idea if we've got another year, if we've got another six months, another two years. I have no idea where any of that, particularly in terms of recession activity and market bottoms, happens. But I do know that when I see these kinds of actions and activities, it's something that makes you stand, stand back, take a look at it from a wider view and go, hmm, okay, that's what we would expect to happen. The bond market's telling us the same thing. Two-year treasuries are up, which are indicative of the market expecting the Fed to continue to raise rates because inflation is still too high. And the long end of the bond market, the 10-year treasury and longer, is telling us the opposite. It's telling us that not the opposite of Fed raising rates, but it's telling us the the result of the Fed raising rates into an economic slowdown, and that's recession. When is the recession going to happen? Sean, there are parts of the economy, there are parts of the industries that are already experiencing it. They're already seeing it. The industrial uh, environment, to some extent, is already seeing uh, a, a fairly severe uh, contraction. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in some of the data points that come out. So we just have to look at these things and just keep building on what is happening. The other side of the equation, and we can talk about this in more detail on the other side of the break, but the other side of the equation is whether or not the growth slowdown becomes muted enough where it ends up in a stagflationary cycle, where 
you don't really have much growth, but inflation starts to come back. Mm. And if you don't have much growth and inflation starts to come back, how does that impact the average buyer's uh, actions, activities, and, and work? And it's impactful. I mean, these kinds of things matter. And people who are old enough listening to this show who remember what the 1970s were like know darn well what stagflation can do to the average American family. Mm. It's a tough spot. So right now, the probabilistic outcome for the next part of the cycle, and we've got a ways to go, I think, before we ultimately hit that, but they can kind of melt together as they're morphing from one cycle to another cycle, is that stagflation kind of an environment. And uh, and if that's true, well, then again, having something that is uh, defensive in nature, uh, having something that's providing protect protective features, you know, in other words, getting away from being so worried about buying the growthiest growth names, hmm. I, there's going to be a time for that, right? And 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 there are trade opportunities. Don't get me wrong. You know, can you trade things like Tesla? Can you trade things like Netflix? Can you trade things like Apple and Microsoft? Absolutely. There's tons of opportunity there. But remember too, on Monday, we get the NASDAQ 100 to get recalibrated. Ooh. And I don't know if I've talked about that before, but to this point, the concentration risk that has existed in the top seven names of the NASDAQ 100 has grabbed the attention of the people who manage the NASDAQ 100 <laughs> and have said, that's too much. We need to pull the, uh, the concentration of those inside the NASDAQ 100 index down and rebalance. Okay. I'm sure managers who are pinned or pegged to the movement of the NASDAQ 100 have already been making lots of moves this last week into that. Sure. And that might have been a reflection of what we saw go on with both Netflix and Tesla. Uh, and perhaps those kinds of moves are already overdone in some managers' eyes that are pegged to the NASDAQ 100. But at the same time, look at how uh, some of the bigger of the big names, you know, the Googles and Microsofts and, and $3 trillion Apple, of, uh, of all things, um, look how they've fared. You know, sure. do they have some some uh, some weakness ahead of them because of this recalibration that's got to go on in uh, on Monday? Maybe. You know, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, the options expiration that happened yesterday was enormous. Biggest July options expiration ever. Mm. Mm. Usually, when I run into something that has ever connected to it, mm -hmm. I like to look at it. <laughs> I like to think about that and ask myself, "How? Oh, what's the impact of that?" Right. So, as always, piles of things happening underneath the surface of price that matter, and we want to make sure we're bringing all of that to you. Talking this morning with Chris Klein. Of course, Chris comes to us from Capstone Wealth Management. Learn more about Chris and the team online and their go anywhere strategy at careformywealth.com. That is careformywealth.com. All one word. Great website, great resource there. Important day, pick up the phone, give Chris a call. 866 596 9886. That's 866 596 9886. You can follow Chris on Twitter at care for my wealth also don't forget as we get all this great information each week from chris if you miss part of the program you can always listen back at careformywealth.com the station's website as well as available on all the popular podcast platforms whether it's spotify itunes iHeartRadio. you can also get the information on uh, and listen to the show right on your smart speaker don't forget to share the program a lot of fantastic information week in and week out from chris and some great shows if you want to go back and get caught up 
Really, really nice stuff there. Again, just head on over to careformywealth.com. Telephone number 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. We'll talk about stagflation. We'll talk about a little bit of a growth slowdown. Some of the details on that. We'll get those from Chris next as Care For My Wealth continues right here on Fox Sports 1070, The Game. Right here on Fox Sports 1070 The Game. You know it's Saturday morning, and that means we're hanging out with Chris Klein of Capstone Wealth Management. Get to know Chris, the team, learn a little bit a little bit more about make, what makes them special, what makes them unique, a little bit about that go-anywhere strategy, all on the website, careformywealth.com. That's careformywealth.com. The telephone number, this is the important thing this morning, to pick up the phone, give Chris a call, 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. And Chris, we were talking just before the break. You had mentioned the word indicators. Um, and uh, obviously, anytime if there's something out there that uh, canary in the coal mine, those numbers, those things that you can be paying attention to, always really important. What are you watching? What are those indicators you were talking about? Oh, everything. How's okay. that? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, everything. I know that that sounds a little bit almost hyperbolic, but uh, no, it's true. I mean, we there are so many things that we pay attention to because when you're attempting to employ a go-anywhere strategy, and what I mean by go-anywhere strategy is that it doesn't matter the asset class and it doesn't matter the location that we focus on investing. The idea is to do your best to find where one, those global economies might be accelerating their growth while at the same time either accelerating or decelerating their inflation. But the acceleration of that growth is the key component behind some of the strength that you're seeing right now in places like Japan and India and South Korea. Mm. And so those are definitely three uh, particular places that we're interested in uh, and, and continuing to build positions in portfolios. But that also means having a go anywhere strategy that lets you focus on where Wall Street flows are are rotating into, as I mentioned before, if in fact we are uh, finding ourselves with Wall Street getting more interested in paying attention to recessionary action, recessionary activity, recessionary indicators, well, then you're going to see things like healthcare and staples and utilities pick up. And so that's an area. And well, okay, well, what about commodities? I don't know. How many people do you know that invest in lithium? Well, we do. Why? <laughs> well, because it's something that is calling mathematically a bullish kind of an environment, at least on the margins. And so therefore, if inflation is starting to reinflate, what's a way in which we can take advantage of that? Well, that's one place that we can do that with. And then on top of that, what else? Well, how about gold? Well, if we're going to run into a stagflationary cycle at some point, big money is going to start to pay attention to what gold is doing. And that appears to certainly be something that's happening right now. And why do we know that? Because volatility just keeps breaking down in the gold market. I was on a conference call with a client this past week, and he asked a very good, very important question. He said, well, what's different with this potential stagflationary cycle that's coming to the one that was in place uh, prior, like into the the late 21, early 22 cycle, where growth was starting to slow, but commodities were on a ramp? And I said, the biggest difference with that particular time frame was what gold volatility was doing. And at that time, gold volatility was trading between 17 and about 28. So let's just give it a, a conservative average of, say, 18 to 20, right? Mm -hmm. Well, right now, gold volatility is at 12. Oh. 
that is a super different cycle that you have to pay attention to because it's very similar to the same thing as saying, well, VIX, if it's sub 10 is uber bullish, that's the kind of place you find a new bull market uh, kicking off in, right? Okay. Or sustaining itself in, I would, I should say. So the fact that gold volatility keeps breaking down is, I think, a very important element to the bigger flows of things looking into the market cycle and suggesting perhaps that, okay, maybe that stagflationary cycle is in fact something that's very, very real. And then of course, on top of that, just cash. I continue to get lots and lots of questions from people as to, well, why in the world can't my bank give me a better yield on my cash? And, and where in the world do we get a better yield? Great question. Um, why would a bank give you more interest if they don't have to? <laughs> Good point. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculously <laughs> simple and and uh, and and non-complex, but it really almost is kind of that simple. Most people just aren't going to pack up and move their accounts because their local bank hasn't given them uh, a yield consistent with, say, a two-year treasury. And, you know, if you're getting a yield close to a two-year treasury, you're running 48 to 5.2%. On, on your cash. Our client portfolios have the majority of their cash sitting in something that's getting them between 4.8 and 5.2%. Why? Because we can go anywhere. We're not constrained to just having money sit, do nothing uh, if we can help it. And so that's an important element. A couple of other indicators that uh, kind of jumped out at me this week that conflict with one another. But yet at the same time, if you have a strategy that can go anywhere, mm -hmm. you can kind of straddle this. And here's what I mean by it. So there's this indicator thing called the S&P 500 bullish percent index. And the bullish percent index is exactly what it says. How many uh, percent, how, what's the percentage of components of the S&P 500 that would be considered to be in a bullish trend? And when you look at that, it peaks ordinarily around the 70% mark. In other words, every time that indicator peaks around 70%, it tends to front run a fairly significant downdraft in the value of the S&P 500. Yeah. And we saw that in a number of different instances. We saw it in January of 22. We saw it in uh, at the market top in mid-March of 2022. We saw it again when markets peaked, uh, again, all to lower highs, I would remind people. But nevertheless, we saw that happen in August of 2022. We saw it again in uh, in um, uh, November of uh, 2022. We saw it again in February of 23. And if you go back and look at a chart of the S&P 500 at those dates that I just mentioned, you'd see, in fact, that it was a what we call a local lower high. Okay. Market collapsed, moved up, hit a lower high, collapsed, hit a lower high, collapsed. It was just this escalator down kind of movement. And that resulted in what 2022 gave a lot of people, and that was... Uh, fairly significant double-digit losses. And uh, if you didn't have you know, some kind of a strategy or risk management system to help you minimize that. Well, in each of those instances that I just mentioned, the S&P 500 bullish percent index breached the 70% mark. And then it rolled over and came back down. And as it rolled over and came back down, it pulled the S&P 500 with it. Mm -hmm. So what do we have happening exactly right now? That. We have the S&P 500 bullish percentage index piercing the 70 percentile line and it's starting to roll over which would give us an indication that we're closer than not to seeing an S&P 500 that's probable 
in terms of giving us some kind of a correction. So that's an important element, especially in the confines of what we're seeing in terms of, of, uh, of, of earnings announcements that are coming out. Um, you know, the earnings data that is, uh, that is hitting so far is, I think, not amazing uh, and, and not awesome for, sure. for most people that look at uh, uh, the math of things. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the, uh, the, the earnings cycle right now, I think the, uh, and it's early. So let me, you know, that caveat, it's definitely mm-hmm. early in the, uh, in the cycle, uh, in terms of, of, um, in terms of the earnings announcements that have been made to this point. But we also know that as earnings continue to come out into the, uh, the, the later stages of just this Q2 data that's out there, but also Q3 that's coming up and this growth slowdown that has been very slowly, I have to admit, but nevertheless happening mm-hmm. is, is occurring. And, and so I'll give you an example. And again, I said, this is very early, but if we look at something like the technology component of the S&P 500, uh, they're, they're experiencing earnings growth of a negative 27% to this point. If we look at the NASDAQ 100, and we look at all of the sectors that exist within the NASDAQ 100, and just know it's not just technology in the NASDAQ 100. You've got, you've got industrials, you've got consumer staples, energy, discretionary communications, healthcare, all of that, right? If we look at the entire cross-section in the NASDAQ 100, earnings growth so far, very early reporting in the Q2 data, their earnings growth is down 15%, Mm. right? Earnings growth is the mother's milk. It is the gas in the engine. You have to have that to really uh, be in a position where you succeed on that that plane of, of expecting stock prices to go higher. So the earnings data that's coming out, the volatility segmentation of the VIX trading at a very, very low historical level in context of where we are in the current cycle, along with the bullish percentage index hitting that 70 mark and then starting to roll over, all gives us additional possibilities turning into probabilities that it wouldn't be surprising to see a fairly decent pullback from here. Now, what's the conflicting (laughs) indicator that we're seeing? It's it's the it's what we would call the flagging VIX, right? So if you go back and you do a study on the VIX, which again is broad equity market, S&P 500 type volatility metric. Mm-hmm. If you go back and do a study of the VIX from 1985 to today, you'd find that anytime the VIX flagged below 14 and stayed there, you got a pretty bullish run in prices, right? Okay. Now, is that going to happen this time? I don't know. I really don't know. But what I can say is that the could VIX be responding to the possibility of that, uh, of that stealth quantitative easing that I just mentioned at the beginning of the show with the Fed to the Treasury and how they're going to handle deficit spending over the next couple of years? Maybe. Is it being artificially suppressed by huge players in the market? Maybe. Uh, I tend to think that that's a high possibility, but the fact of the matter is, is that I can't ignore what the data says. And that's a new thing. I mean, this literally just popped up on my screens this week, right? (laughs) So how do we respond to that? Well, we respond to that by being willing to take a little bit more open, uh, open mindedness in buying certain equity positions at certain times, maybe grossing up harder, those utilities those healthcare positions, those 
consumer staple positions, maybe taking a shot on some things that get a little oversold uh, within the context of the current market cycle. What you have to remember is in the midst of a trending bear market, the one thing that is true is that volatility matters. And what you end up getting in the midst of a trending bear market is not the opportunity to not make money. It's not the opportunity to just always everything go down all the time. It's that volatility tends to escalate. And we're also, if that you know was something that's important, which mm -hmm. I think it is, we're on the cusp of a seasonality flip. Now, what in the world is that? <laughs> a seasonality flip just means that if you look historically how the VIX or other volatility metrics tend to trade, they tend to bottom out right about now, and then they tend to just kind of go on a rip into the fall. Now, is that going to happen this time? I don't know. But seasonality certainly lines up with all the other things that I just mentioned with regards to the bullish percentage index above a, a level where it would tend to pull the S&P 500 down, earnings data coming in weak, companies that are missing, tightening lending standards, you know, all of that stuff. All of that said, what's important about investment management, what's important about portfolio management is having an open enough mind to recognize that if in fact something is happening underneath the surface of price that could cause price to escalate a little bit, how do you take advantage of that without putting yourself in an overly risky position, which if in the event we continue in a trending bear market and volatility rips from here, doesn't hurt? Mm -hmm. Well, number one is making sure you're not over your skis and over allocated to U.S. equities because that's just not what a bear market would call for. And number two, that you're not focusing on something that's over-concentrated. Well, what's over-concentrated? Everybody owns it, right? <laughs> and so we know the biggest of the big cap tech names are definitely things that everybody owns. Is that to say you shouldn't buy something from time to time to trade? No, but you have to be willing to be nimble. And and that's an area that a lot of people I know who are listening don't have the ability to with their portfolios because they're tied up in 401ks where they've got a subset of individual mutual funds to choose from. And a lot of those mutual funds just tend to trade like one another, right? Mm -hmm. An area of the market that we think is going to continue to be weak. And there is some backlash in this in that there have been some very big institutional uh, um, analysts and uh, uh, what we would call sell-siders on the street okay. who have said, this looks like a great time to buy small caps. And my head trader and I sat back and looked at that and kind of went, really? Now that makes me kind of, it sort of makes me laugh. And, and here's why. Okay. Small caps tend to be those kinds of companies that struggle when lending standards are getting tight. They need access to capital, and they absolutely need that access to capital to be able to maintain not just their business operations, but in most cases to generate any kind of growth. And now we've got a scenario where not only are the access to lending standards tightening up, but access to capital markets are tightening up. And you can see that just by what's happening in, in, in the overall bond market and with high yield spreads. In other words, the difference between a high yield bond yield and a U.S. Treasury yield, that that scenario is not a picture that is painting, hey, this is bullish uh, to me. An inverted yield curve where short-term interest rates are way, way higher than long-term interest rates, that just becomes very recessionary in nature. 
clearly a slowdown in the overall uh, aspect of, of consumer spending. Uh, we know that because retail sales decelerated uh, again, and that was announced uh, Tuesday of last week. Mm -hmm. So you've got a deceleration in the overall picture of, of retail sales. And it wasn't a small one. You know, you go from January to now, you know, you go up 7.4% retail sales to up 1.5% retail sales on a year over year cycle. Uh, that's a that's, that's, that, that's a, a deceleration. And, and that's the sort of thing that if you're a small company, you don't want, because that's telling you that people are slowing down their spending. And if they're slowing down their spending, that could negatively impact your capacity to expand your margins and all the things that tend to affect your your uh, your bottom line. So I'm not one that thinks small caps are a great place to be. I tend to think that small caps are at a place right now mm -hmm. that would be a uh, a ripe spot for a pullback that could turn into something significant. We don't know until it starts. But if you look at a chart of the the uh, Russell 2000, which are the small caps, what you'd see is that had it had a local lower high in August of 2022. It had another lower high, lower than that August of 2022 number in February of 23. Now notice how those two dates also coincide with the dates of what I mentioned in the S&P 500 bullish percentage index. And when it peaked, rolled over, and then the, the index dropped with it. And so now what do we have? Well, just this week, the, uh, the index, the Russell 2000 put in yet another lower high, lower than February 23, uh, lower than February 23, and also uh, lower than, than the August of 22 data. And when that happens, it's a lower high, lower high, lower high. It, that's telling us that there's rotation happening with institutional money. The days in which markets were down had higher volume than the days in which markets had uh, were up and had volume. So all these things just work together. And so at the beginning of this segment, when you said, well, what are you watching? And mm -hmm. I said, everything. I know that's almost laughable, yeah. but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's important stuff as we talk with Chris, too, and as he, as he explains a little bit about the Go Anywhere strategy. And, of course, somebody that's working for you, wants to work with you, and is doing those things for you. Chris and his team would love to do that. All you got to do this morning is pick up the phone and give him a call, 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. Started this week off by talking about how difficult and dangerous this part of the cycle can be for folks. Chris has been through this before. He's here for you. He'd love to work with you again. It all starts the phone call, 866-596-9886. That's 866-596-9886. Learn more online, the website careformywealth.com. That's careformywealth.com. Chris, it's always informative and enlightening chatting with you. You enjoy this most beautiful day. Thank you, sir. You too. This is Care For My Wealth right here. Fox Sports 1070, The Game.